You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. My name is George Perkovich. I'm a director of, I guess I'm the director of the Nuclear Policy Program, um, <laughs> although somebody else wants to be. Um, the, the, uh, but it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon, this Friday afternoon. Uh, it's so beautiful out, you ought to be thinking about why you're here. Um, but, but I think one answer is that the paper that Henry and, and Victor have written, um, and which is the object of the discussion uh, today, really is interesting, uh, raises uh, big, important questions. Uh, we can talk about and debate the feasibility and, and all of that, but I think it's the seriousness and kind of the fundamental uh, character of the discussion they're promoting that uh, is, is why we were happy to uh, provide a venue for the discussion and why I assume or hope uh, that you all are here. Um, Henry Sikolsky and Victor Glinsky perhaps need no uh, introduction. You have bios, I think, but I would say that uh, Henry's the founder and be the executive director or president or same as you, whatever, whatever of of NPAC, uh, which is one of the most uh, innovative um, think tanks and organizations that works on nuclear policy in the world. And Victor Glinsky, uh, who invented many of the the, the rules, the insights. Uh, that all of us have been living off for the subsequent 40 years uh, when he's in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and before that um, is, a, is a truly, uh, you know, not a, 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 a paternal figure, uh, 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 an uncular figure uh, in, the, in, the, in the nuclear uh, uh, world of the U.S. anyway. Um, and so it's great to have both of you here. They're going to present um, their their paper or the gist of their paper. I'll offer a few comments and then we'll have a have a discussion. Which of you is going to go first? Victor's going to go first. Is this on? George is uh, too generous, except for that uh, paternal part. <laughs> um, well, you know, as you know, as all of you know, I think uh, from the beginning of the nuclear age, uh, we've looked for ways to uh, to uh, be able to expand nuclear power use worldwide uh, in a way that doesn't at the same time spread the bomb. And uh, all of these proposals from the past have left their marks, and I'd, I'd like to highlight a few just to kind of set the stage. The first, of course, was the 1946 Atchison-Lilienthal plan. Uh, it identified the problem, the overlap between technology for electricity and technology for bombs. Uh, its recommendation for international control had no chance uh, at the time, or now for that matter. Um, and unfortunately, it introduced the idea that, uh, the, the, the false idea that uh, reactor plutonium was unusable for bombs, which as I said is wrong, but still lingers in, in, in debates. Now, when strict control didn't work, uh, we shifted gears a few years later, or really reversed course, uh, with Atoms for Peace. We distributed nuclear technology freely. 
with minimal oversight. Uh, the idea was that uh, if people get involved in so-called peaceful technology, it'll take their mind off uh, military technology. Um, that wasn't the real motive, but that was what we said. Uh, in, since then, we've tightened things up, <clears throat> but we're still in that expansive mode about nuclear power, uh, still dreaming the dream. Um, you know, I was struck, the, the president gave a speech a couple of months ago in South Korea. A uh, large part of it was about nuclear energy, nuclear bombs. Um, and he coupled rejecting nuclear arms with, quote, embracing peaceful nuclear energy, that same idea which he saw as becoming ever more important. Uh, to continue with the history, in, in the 60s, in the Kennedy administration, that was probably the time when proliferation had the highest priority in the government. Uh, he repeatedly warned, John Kennedy repeatedly warned about that and uh, about the consequences. And uh, the U.S. Uh, strongly supported the process that led to the uh, 1970 NPT. Uh, in the course of negotiation over that treaty, over the MPT, uh, it acquired a certain amount of baggage. It, uh, the inspection provisions were watered down. Uh, this is an effort to get wide acceptance. Uh, it, the final version included a three-month withdrawal clause and also stated that uh, all the members had the inalienable right to peaceful nuclear technology. Uh, which is a phrase which is thrown up to us quite often by other countries. Uh, in the treaty, it's actually followed by in conformity with Articles 1 and 2. Uh, but that part is often uh, left out. In 1974, the Indian explosion, Indian bomb, um, jolted these atoms for peace assumptions about peaceful uses of nuclear power, of, nu of nuclear energy. Uh, it became clear that any country with access, easy access to plutonium, uh, or for that matter, highly enriched uranium, uh, could ignore promises and quickly obtain a bomb. It became clear that uh, part of nonproliferation had to be technology, some restriction on technology technology control. And in fact, right after that at US initiative, uh, we formed the Nuclear Suppliers Group. But, but the suppliers or the U.S. never took on the seeming inconsistency in the NPT on the one hand, inalienable rights on the other hand, you know, no prol proliferation, so thus leaving a certain murkiness in the treaty. In 1976, President Ford decided that plutonium was too dangerous for commercial use. Uh, and that nuclear energy should develop on the basis of a once-through fuel cycle. In other words, without reprocessing, uh, so as to maintain a safety margin um, for proliferation. In other words, to lengthen the time it would take to obtain nuclear explosives. And of course, Jimmy Carter, when he came in, continued with that policy. Now, the nuclear community fought back. And among the... The various arguments, but to me the most interesting argument was the one that said that restricting commercial reprocessing didn't make any sense 
uh, was futile because any country with a reactor could easily build a small clandestine reprocessing plant uh, to separate significant quantities of plutonium for weapons. And to drive the point home, the Oak Ridge National Lab actually published a detailed plan for a simple, small uh, reprocessing plant. Now, of course, the point of it was to undermine the program to ban reprocessing. But when you think about it, what it really does is undermine the argument that a nuclear power plant by itself is a safe proposition. Because if you have a clandestine, or if you have to worry about clandestine plants, you've eliminated that safety margin. And somewhat later, another safety margin collapsed, and that's the one having to do with highly rich uranium, when uh, gas centrifuge technology became uh, fairly widely available. Because gas centrifuge, unlike its predecessor, gaseous diffusion, is, uh, lends itself well to small-scale application, which means you have to worry about clandestine HEU production, which, of course, we worry about in Korea and Iran. An important point here is that facilities that are small in commercial terms can be very significant in military terms. And I should also mention in this list uh, the Bush administration program to solve fuel cycle issues, nuclear fuel cycle issues, the DOE's GINA program. Uh, at the center of this was a futuristic reprocessing technology and recycling technology. It turns out to be pie in the sky. But I, I bring it up because DOE seems to have sold the need for this to the president, to President Obama. In, in the speech I cited in South Korea in March, he spoke of the need for, quote, an international commitment to unlocking the fuel cycle of the future. We already have the one through fuel cycle. He's talking about something else. And we haven't in all this time, in this history, succeeded in putting a firm wall between nuclear energy use for electricity and the possible use for bombs. Nevertheless, we continue to support nuclear power expansion worldwide. It's U.S. policy. Uh, of course, we try to put on as much non-proliferation, anti-proliferation protection as we can, as the traffic will bear, but that's just it. Uh, the overriding assumption is that we have to have nuclear power. And the current rationale, of course, is global warming. Now, Henry and I asked ourselves, uh, what would the controls look like if instead we put top priority on non-proliferation? Uh, what would it take to be reasonably comfortable with a large expansion of nuclear power worldwide um, uh, under those conditions? And I say a large expansion because if your argument is global warming, you have to have a tremendous number of plants to make a dent in global warning. You're talking about a thousand plants or more. Uh, it doesn't make, from that point of view, much sense to be building just a few, unless uh, they are the vanguard of a large number. Anyhow, we started down by setting down a number of principles. Uh, a lot of them are familiar. Uh, the ingredients are familiar. It's hard to say something completely new after all these decades of discussion. But the point is, to really take them seriously and apply them all. 
And here's what we came up with. The first one I'd call locking down the NPT, uh, making membership essentially permanent. Uh, treaty members should certainly not be allowed to withdraw without squaring accounts. It certainly applies to violations in the way that North Korea left. And you know, it was, I, I thought it was unfortunate that at the time, uh, everyone deplored their departure, but as best I recall, no one made the point that it is illegal to do this. It violates the sense of the treaty uh, to be in violation and just walk out. Um, but I think the restrictions need to go beyond that. Uh, it's also inconsistent with the NPT's overriding purpose for members to withdraw after gaining technology, which everyone else had a right to assume was being obtained in, uh, for peaceful purposes. And I would say that applies whether the technology comes from some other country or whether they developed it themselves. Uh, and it should be made clear that any country with nuclear facilities that withdraws or announces withdrawal would be regarded as a treaty violator and subject to severe sanction, an automatic sanction, until it returned to compliance. That was one. The second principle, I would say, and again familiar, is to establish a technological safety margin. Now, the treaty can't be a vehicle for legally coming overly close to a weapons capability. It's not a new concept, but it's tricky to apply in a consistent, uh, in a consistent way. For example, we currently object to Iran conducting enrichment. Uh, Brazil is doing almost the same thing, and there are various problems with, with that program and their relationship with the, with the IEA as well. But now, of course, the reason is we worry about Iran's intentions. We don't worry about Brazil's intentions. But you know, there was a time when we thought the Shah was okay, and we worried about Brazilian bombs. So I think it says to me that you have to take a longer term view, uh, and apply common rules. The, uh, I said that the inalienable right language is followed by in conformance with Article 1 and 2. It's also followed by uh, a phrase that says it will be on a non-discriminatory basis. And I think we have to take that seriously. That's the second one. The third one is highly intrusive inspections. Uh, countries involved in nuclear energy must accept that because of the inherent risks that nuclear energy poses for others, or their capability poses for others, they have to agree to operate in a transparent way. Uh, to eliminate the possibility of clandestine facilities, to restore that safety margin, uh, countries have got to agree to essentially unlimited inspection uh, rights for the IAEA. Uh, the IEA's additional protocol is a good start in that direction, and I would say a start. Uh, the fourth item is predictable NRC, uh, not NRC, I used to be on the NRC, <laughs> <laughs> predictable NPT enforcement. It's an obvious point, but it's often forgotten that effective controls depend not only on a high probability of detection of violation, but also that the, viol the potential violator has to expect severe, that there's a high probability of severe sanction. Uh, the NPT has no explicit mechanism for enforcement. 
how this gap is filled or not filled. Uh, on an, whoops, sorry about that. Let me turn this off. Uh, on an ad hoc basis, uh, there should be an established enforcement mechanism to deal with treaty violations in a predictable way. And it would help to have a permanent secretariat attached to the treaty to deal with, with these issues. Now, the fifth item is that all nuclear states have got to participate in these arms reductions. Uh, this is essential for getting the mass of NPT members to participate in restrictions on them. In the first instance, this, of course, means Britain, France, and China, uh, which have not joined the reductions uh, being carried out by the United States and Russia. But it also has to include India, Israel, and Pakistan. It's obviously un unacceptable for NPT members to be reducing their arms while these three uh, countries, Jesus. <laughs> You'd think it would. Um, while these countries do not. Uh, now, a way of approaching this in a positive way is to start by declaring the treaty, which is now accepted by 190 countries, as universal and applying to everyone, all countries, whether they signed up or not. Uh, but then one could, one needs to supply a path for compliance. And I would say that if these three, uh, which we might call undocumented states, uh, would join in the arms reduction plan, they would be out of compliance, but on a path toward compliance. Now, um, Henry and I didn't, as they say, just fall off a turnip truck. Uh, we're under no illusions about how difficult it is it would be to obtain agreement on these points. At the same time, one shouldn't be under any illusions about expanding nuclear power without doing this. Now, we can't control the world and we can't reverse history, uh, but we can set our own course. And I think we need to reconsider U.S. policy to increase the world's commitment to nuclear power. Uh, in his March speech, uh, when I referred to, President Obama called for, quote, a renewed commitment to harnessing the power of the atom, not for war, but for peaceful purposes, and so on, recalling the atoms for peace uh, slogans. The question is, do we really want to push in this direction without first making sure that peaceful nuclear activities will stay that way. Going back to President Ford in 1976 uh, that I mentioned, he said that we should postpone plutonium recycle until, quote, the world community can effectively overcome the associated risks of proliferation. If we're not now able to mobilize support for a strong proliferation, non-proliferation regime, we should stop promoting nuclear policies that will overload the ones we have. Thank you. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to talk about that tulip truck a little. Why don't you have a seat? Um, first of all, I want to thank George for putting us up here. Uh, 
I realize you had a very busy schedule. is isn't just making the room available, but you made yourself available, which I appreciate. And uh, I always feel like I have a friend in you, so this is a good thing. I try not to abuse that friendship. Thank you. Uh, also, that we have this many people turn out makes me think maybe we picked a good topic. I mean, it's late on a sunny afternoon. Luckily, there are no big windows here. But uh, it's pretty impressive, I mean, I, to me. Uh, I suppose uh, the, the point of departure for this effort, which is actually part of a two-year project, there are research papers, and there's going to be a conference this weekend. Uh, there's more behind this than just this paper. Is a, is a comment that uh, a professor I studied under, Albert Wollstair, once made. And he said, it would be nice if we could just at least stop making our mistakes hereditary. And what he meant by that is we do know that we can do better, but we frequently tell ourselves, well, but we already did this once, and we said it was the right thing, and if we admit our mistakes, it'll be embarrassing, so let's not. And an awful lot of uh, political tragedy gets caught up in not standing up and saying, it's time for a change. I mean, everyone talks about change, but what it really means, in the best sense, is admitting to some mistakes. It doesn't necessarily mean you revolutionize things. That's the spirit in which this effort was put together. And I, I have to say, of all the parts of the two-year project, I enjoyed this one the most because we spent a lot of time on the phone, Victor and I, trying to figure out what, we sh what should go in. Uh, there's a lot besides these principles that's in this paper. What is in it there in addition are some practical measures. Put up a little bit so be... don't fall off the stage. Oh, there you go. Does that's that ever happen? That would be, no, that no, would be would bad. Be an innovation. Yeah, no, we don't want that. Uh, that's the change that's not good. That's, yeah, you got that right. So there, are, in addition to the principles, we try to briefly sketch out what the practical implications would be of pursuing these principles. Now, I know we said, actually, literally, that it would be difficult, perhaps impossible, to obtain broad agreement on all the points that we make. And we even took a bit of a dig at ourselves and our friends by saying that, you know, what's useful about NGOs is framing questions and, and getting that right, and that you undermine that if you try too hard to act like insiders who anticipate you know, what the bureaucratic imperatives are uh, and then try to work around it so that you gain a favorable reception to your message. But I think it's equally true that if you don't show any practical traction for your ideas, you open yourself up to the accusation that you're out there in the planet Zork <laughs> and you should be ignored. Uh, so what I want to show is a little bit how pursuing these principles are possible and try a little, if not very hard, uh, to show that there is some context for moving on these ideas. Um, in short, I don't want the world of practitioners to be let off the hook on this. First, with regard to establishing a technological margin of safety, I just left uh, an event yesterday uh, on the Hill uh, that I think there, this is a pretty good audience, but we, we had 120 to that one. 
And it was a, an event that featured, uh, or at least billed, uh, John Bolton and Edward Markey talking about the gold standard. That, that drew a lot of people. They said, I want to see that. Uh, I guess Markey didn't come because he had to mark up. But they came and they stayed and they listened anyway. Ross Leighton came, who's the well, chairman. That explains it. Yeah. Well, they stayed to listen to her. They even stayed for the second panel, which was really remarkable. Uh, in any case, the House Foreign Affairs Committee has marked up legislation last year to promote what's called the gold standard, which effectively tries to make the United States lead by example and perhaps by implication lean on the other suppliers, the French and the Russians, to say that no more nuclear cooperation in the civil area should go on unless countries forswear making nuclear fuel. Now, admittedly, there are inspection problems and all that, but right now you don't have to worry about the inspection problems. There's no legal problem. So at least a legal barrier should be put up. Now, if it was just the House Foreign Affairs Committee, it would be interesting. It was reported out unanimously. But then unanimously, the House Armed Services Committee uh, earlier this week put out report language saying that they actually thought this effort was important to the security of the United States and of the world. Now, they have never done this before. To my knowledge, no Armed Services Committee, and I used to work on one, or at least for someone who worked on one, Dan Quayle, uh, for many years. We never touched these topics. These were out of scope. I think that's very interesting. Uh, if it was just the House, well, it certainly would be interesting, but it's more than that. The executive has felt as though it has to reconsider its policy on this. It pretty much decided to jettison it. But as soon as they announced that they had jettisoned the idea of backing this gold standard, because after all, we had promoted this standard in our last nuclear cooperative agreement in 2009, which was with the UAE, and everyone thought we would continue, but the administration said, well, it's too hard. Well, now they've gone back and said, well, Maybe we need to rethink this. Maybe it's hard, but maybe we have to. Well, why? Well, they get a letter from Luger, I think, is part of it. And I think the secretary actually didn't realize she had checked off on this. You know, you read the top of a memo, and you don't read below the fold. And if you do, you go, oh, my God, you know, it's a different thing. I think that more or less happened. But I think, in addition, it didn't hurt that you know, my center and the Foreign Policy Institute put out a letter with 21 fairly conservative signatures, including Steve Hadley, who used to be the National Security Advisor for Mr. Bush, and Bob Joseph, and Mr. Bolton, saying, you know, Mr. President, you need to rethink this. Now, I think the President now is under pressure not to let the Iranians look like they're getting the better of us. It's an election year. I'm not so sure this does. This set of issues doesn't have some traction. People can be watching this. Now, in addition, the countries that we are most likely to negotiate nuclear cooperative agreements with next is quite a list. It, it's not Canada. It's China, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam. Jordan, 
These are countries that, in some cases, if you think about the length of the agreement, what is it, 20 years, roughly, the nuclear cooperative agreement? Do we know who's going to be running some of these countries in 20 years? Jordan? Saudi Arabia? So we start building a reactor before we know whether they'll still be in business. That could be risky. China is a country that we have very dicey relationships with from a security standpoint. One of the things they want to do is build a plant that would take spent fuel from our reactors, we sold four, and extract weapons-usable plutonium. They want to do it right at a facility that is known to be a nuclear weapons production facility. We don't want to review that. We don't want to vote on that. Really? Well, that, that doesn't sound right. So it seems to me that these questions about the gold standard and establishing technological safety margin, there, there, there's a a number of opportunities to get political traction to start talking about these things. Uh, in addition, it's always argued, oh, well, but how can we lead if no one follows? Well, uh, you can't. But what makes you think we can't have someone follow? Well, we don't have leverage is the argument. By the way, every diplomat complains that he doesn't have leverage. I always say, how would they know? You would have to use it first and find out. We do have some. I mean, the Chinese and the South Koreans need a nuclear cooperative agreement with us. Coming due. In the case of the ROK, they may not be able to export reactors that have US origin technology without a nuclear cooperative agreement. They have an interest. Not only that, but more important than that, they're close military allies. There are many other things in play. China, same concern. They want to have US technology. And Russia and France, well, they want to open up fuel making plants eventually here in the United States. They need nuclear cooperative agreements to export the goods. So it isn't as though we're, you know, flailing around on the floor, nude, uh, helpless. We can do things if we choose to focus and say we want to pay more attention to this concern. Now, with regard to the restrictions on enrichment and reprocessing, uh, I guess the first word that would come out of one's mouth to think that this is not beyond working at all is Fukushima. The future of Japan's nuclear program is uncertain. The future of their breeder reactor program is pretty clear. It's kaput. Why do you reprocess? Well, you have to come up with arguments which are quite remarkable and technically difficult to defend. It has something to do with, I don't know, waste management. Good luck. They themselves on the Atomic Energy Commission in Japan have determined that it would be cheaper not to recycle but to have once through. The facts don't help them. Well, then that has bearing on the South Koreans. I had a private conversation when I was there last year before the summit with some very senior Koreans who gave me all the reasons why they wanted to recycle plutonium. I said, but what, what happens if the Japanese don't? I said, oh, well, that might be very different. 
I thought that was an interesting answer. Somewhat honest. All right, so those things are connected. And I'd like to think that even China might look a little funny if it got into this, if all their neighbors got out of it. Uh, now there's the case of Brazil. A tough case. But an interesting one. They just canceled making a decision on building new reactors for another decade. It reduces demand for fresh fuel. And there's more. Their justification for enriching seems to turn increasingly, therefore, on them having a nuclear submarine project. But it doesn't make any military sense. Ask Israelis. They seem to be happy without them. They have very advanced conventional submarines. They work very well. And if you're patrolling for oil rigs, airplanes and fast surface ships work a lot better. So there's not much of an argument militarily. When that country, should it persist in this project, exercises its right to withdraw enriched uranium from safeguards, you're going to have so many conferences up on this dais about how to do it. Good luck. I don't know what the answer will be. It's just going to be a mess. Well, then we won't have a conference. Oh, no. It's a nice country. You, you want to have conferences. Oh, and there. but not oh, There you go. Well, I'm counting on it. Uh, in any case, you might want to get ahead of this and start thinking about it now. Now, with regard to an IA fee for inspections based on capacity and things like that, these are ideas that came from the IEA. And so it's not, it's not you know, generated ex nihilo. Uh, they have metrics for how many man years of inspection each facility requires. They could do this. We have the information. With regard to the ideas of having default automatic country neutral sanctions, admittedly, this was an idea that I think you and I came up with so well, many Pierre years ago. Goldschmidt. But Pierre Goldschmidt has made it his, his entire industry. That's good. But more important than that, it was in the UN resolution that Mr. Obama introduced in 2009 and passed. Also, that there should be, that withdrawal shouldn't be allowed was, was brought up then. So it isn't like, again, we're pushing on doors that haven't at least got handles on them. Uh, finally, we make the suggestion that in moving arms control into new areas beyond US and Russia, that at a minimum, when we get into the business of having folks declare what they have. Now, the US does this. The UK has done this. France roughly does this. Russia sort of does this in the, in the case of strategic. China doesn't. But that China doesn't is a big and growing problem. They are an unknown quantity that is going to slow the whole train down if we don't get more clarity. So you're going to have to deal with that anyway. Now, if you bring China in, I have a prediction. India will demand to get in. And if India gets in, Pakistan will demand to get in. The psychology of this isn't quite as obviously negative as people portray it. Uh, now, Israel's special case. There, all I can say is, at some point, they have to come to terms with being alone and being surrounded. And, and they're going to have to deal with this. So it doesn't seem to me that this is uh, wonkery. Maybe that's the, the most dismissive term. 
but it would take a certain amount of leadership. What we have not discussed and what actually is the biggest part of the research project is getting people to rethink what happens if we continue on the current course. Uh, I'll just suggest in closing what the World Nuclear Association believes. Their top economist and political analyst, Steve Kidd, who I have a great deal of regard for and have actually used and contracted with, so it's not anyone but a friend, wrote that he didn't see much of a problem with the spread of nuclear weapons because, after all, you couldn't stop it in the first instance, and there wouldn't be very much. Only six more countries, he said, uh, by 2030, which I don't know where he got that number. <laughs> it seems like an enormous number to me. Uh, now, if you really do think that that's not a big number, and, and as he says, no one would use these weapons ever, they're, they're useless, nobody's interested in that, only dopes and chumps bother with this stuff, and you can ignore it, everything deters everything perfectly, well, then I don't know. Maybe we, we really have wasted our time. But if you have any doubts, and you ought to, take a look. In the Middle East, since 1980, there have been upwards to as many as 13 military strikes against facilities that haven't even come online. What would happen if people had nuclear weapons? I mean, I don't know. I think we need to be much more careful about assuming that everything that has gone well in the past will continue to dominate events in the future. If you believe that, then this is a modest set of dietary changes, even though they will look very radical to the average diplomat or observer from the outside. So that's our apologia. We're done. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Victor, and thank you, uh, Henry. Um, I, I, I. Just going to make a few, some general and then a couple specific to the particular rules, and then let's open up. I also want to first thank, um, Henry was very gracious in thanking me, but then I felt guilty because Maddie Foley actually did all the work, um, <laughs> who's back there. So I want to thank Maddie, um, who, who made this all Well, that, now you possible. make me feel guilty. We, I, I have two back there on myself. We have Kate Harrison and Daniel Hollingsworth. No wonder we have such a yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we do. Yeah, but they're standing. Um, the, the, there must be some labor rule. I mean, you know. um, okay, two, at least two general comments. And, and Henry, you just alluded to one that I would make, which is everyone needs electricity, but not everyone worries about nuclear proliferation. And so, which you guys... No, but I mean, I, I mean it seriously. When you travel a lot in a lot of the countries that we're talking about, um, they say, look, proliferation's your problem, or maybe your pal the Israeli's problem, but it's not our problem. Uh, but electricity is our problem. And so you're trying to deny us access to something we all need and which you have plenty of in... To, in the trade of giving a priority, privileging something that's really your problem. So you solve your problem, um, which you guys know, but I, I, I don't want to underestimate it. And I, and, and I think that's the way a lot of this is going to be uh, heard. Related point, 
and I thought the paper, which I, th I think is a great paper, and I think the beginning of it and what Victor said lays out very well kind of how the rules got to be the way they are, which is, you know, a series of compromises. So starting with Atchison Lilienthal, there's a very robust proposal of plan. There's an analysis much like your analysis. It says, look, if you really take this seriously, here's what you got to do. And then in the course of trying to make it happen, it gets diluted. But those are early rules were done in a bipolar world, and I mean that in the structural sense, not the chemical sense, that, that there was the US and the Soviet Union, and they could impose discipline on a system, and they both totally agreed on nonproliferation. And so we got those rules, which weren't strong enough. Now we're in a different structure where, you know, I mean, you get the point. The US is seen as the imposing power, the weaker have become much stronger. And when you're talking about U.S. Congress legislation, I mean, the Congress does so many things that the rest of the world finds totally objectionable, and that's a polite term for it. So the idea that then people are going to respond to the dictates of some of the people that you mentioned, you know, who were at the meeting yesterday, uh, is, is it's, it's laughable. Um, they're just not, especially to congressional imposition, um, because they didn't elect those people to be their legislators. On the specifics, the, the withdrawal issue, so number one, the question of the exercise of the right of withdrawal. I, I had a clarifying question, which is, uh, is, is it the idea that basically you would make it impossible to withdraw for a state that was found in noncompliance before they withdrew, or for everybody? Um, and I, and because I think there's a big difference. Well, certainly for the first. Okay. But I would go further. Okay. And then a related question, because I have this in mind when I think about what may happen in, in, with Iran and Israel. Would a country that was bombed illegally by another country still not have a right to withdraw from the NPT in your, in your version? I, you don't have to answer now, but I mean, I think that, that playing well, that I, I have to say we're in a peculiar situation where we are cooperating with a non-NPT member to attack right. a, an NPT member, right. which is... Uh, right, so, I, so that's why I'm trying yes. to tease out, because I think other people will raise it. On the question of number two, where you talk about the treaty can't be a vehicle for legally coming overly close to weapons capability, which I think is a, actually that one, I think, is, has not been sufficiently explored in the last 50 years or however long. There's a lot there. But when you talk about the treaty's overriding objective being nonproliferation, just kind of a footnote question, okay, but, but a lot of people would say after 95, which was the review conference, the idea that its overriding objective is nonproliferation is, is more qualified, I think. That people well, many see it as a sort of three-part treaty. Right. Is right. One is nonproliferation, one is promoting nuclear power, one is reductions in nuclear weapons. Right, and that's what I'm saying. So I'm just yes. saying that yes. 95 is different than 68, it, and and it and there was so that that needs to be fact. I'm just talking about strengthening the argument. Um, two more points. Then when you talk about rule number four, the NPT needs established enforcement mechanism to deal with treaty violations in a predictable way. Do you conceptualize that it would be possible to violate Article 6 and Article 4? And if so, would you then have enforcement on the disarmament and nuclear cooperation 
principles. So that sure, someone will bring that up. <laughs> so that's what, so I'm, so I'm, I'm <laughs> anticipating uh, that. And then the last one on the on the the regarding the because 190 members uh, states are members of the treaty, it should be regarded as as universal. I mean, obviously, it's the most universal, or it must be the most universal treaty there is. But to treat it as universal, I'm trying to imagine the people that you mentioned yesterday, or, or as signing your letter, John Bolton, Bob Joseph, et cetera, et cetera, accepting ever as a matter of principle that because a vast majority of states adopted a treaty, the U.S. would accept itself to be bound by that if it hadn't, hadn't ratified it period. So, so that you would get objection from the quarters that you just mentioned. To well, in, 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 in hang on, hang on. I, I want him to get done. I am done. Okay, now I want And I had a big wind-up, but that was like, uh, <laughs> but, but, but let's, call, let's call it done. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Can I, let me answer some of them. And, Go for it. Okay. And then we'll, First of all, uh, if I thought we had to choose between security and shivering, uh, I guess... I'm not sure how it, how it would go. I think when people say, well, we need electricity, you can't deny us this, I, I think it, it's a, a really a, a criminal lack of imagination or information that would suggest that you should be quiet when, you, when you're told that. There are just too many other ways to boil water in most instances. And, and I know there are many people, not just on the left, but on the right, that have worked this. And they come to agreement. And it isn't just the United States or the major powers. Some of the best work is done in the third world. So uh, most of the electricity needs of the people who shiver the most are people very far from a grid, very far from central generated electricity, who are most likely to be served most cheaply, most quickly, with things that are so far from a nuclear power plant, it's ridiculous to allow someone uh, that rhetorical twist without coming back and saying, yes, but that's not the choice. So that's point one. Point two, the rules, having read the entire 10-year negotiating record, and I, I considered myself rare for having done that. Spent several years doing that. I want to get help about that. Yeah. <laughs> if you think those rules were the result of bipolar domination, it's not the same record I read. It got watered down by an awful lot of smaller countries. So their rules are not simply the result of you know, some magical moment. Basically, the problem then is not that different from now. It was, in fact, in some respects, it's easier now because people are better informed than they were back. Nobody knew what nuclear power was at all. Now, people at least know what it costs. It's not cheap. Well, the safeguards actually got watered down specifically uh, to get Germany and Japan to join. To say nothing of India. They, they were... Germany was perhaps right. Most no, I mean that was my point. I mean the starting rules were strong yes, yeah. because the U.S. and the Soviet Union agreed. Then they got watered down by everybody. Well, else. the that starting rules point. actually were quite vague. They got specified in a very watered down way, but that's they were point. very vague at all times. Uh, I think um, that's a minor point. With regard to Congress, you and I just disagree. 
I think governments are constituted to precisely make rules where the market or subsidized market would dash in a direction that would not be in the public good. I also think that larger powers, like the United States, particularly since they have equities not just here but abroad, have a special role to work with other large countries and small countries to shape what makes sense. And Congress is important, the executive is important, and it doesn't have to be Congress, and it doesn't have to be the United States, but it's got to be somebody. And the idea that this is going to come out of the ether belies our interest in electing a president or caring about American politics. It just seems to me there's no escape from that. And that's the reason Washington has so many think tanks, why we have audiences like this. It's not a bad thing. It's just a bad thing if you don't take it seriously and do better at it. So that's our apology there. Now, with regard to interpretations of the NPT, and 95 for 65, and we got to look at it this way and that way, let me just remind everybody about one of the things that was decided in 2010. If you read the review conference, it says, you cannot reinterpret the NPT. That's one of their findings. How ludicrous. Further down in the same document, they, they have a comment about Article 5. Now, does anybody remember what Article 5 is? It's about peaceful nuclear explosives. What they say there in the review conference is, it's one line. It's really quite elegant. It's embarrassing, because they just said you can't reinterpret. It says, please refer to UN resolution. I forget what the, the number was. It's about comprehensive test ban, which is a way of saying, with regard to Article 5, we've decided it's dead letter, and we have reinterpreted, because we now know there are no possible benefits, and we don't want to share them. Now, it seems to me that what Victor and I are trying to say is that in some instances, the things that everyone assumes are inalienable and can't be reinterpreted and are clearly beneficial and are safe are precisely none of the above. And views do change. Matters what we think. That line between safe and dangerous moves and is moving, and we better pay attention to it. And we can change, change our mind. Now, finally, a word about my friends. It seems to me that Mr. Bolton, in particular, has a very, very keen legal knowledge of what common usage means. Common usage, common norm, common usage, is when something becomes so prevalent, it becomes accepted. That is, in essence, what he is best known for having devised in the Proliferation Security Initiative. And that is what he was trying to do, get a number of countries involved. I don't think he'd have any problem with this, actually. And I suspect the problem is that it is not yet common usage enough. And that is the point about getting these other countries that are the outliers to begin to behave as though they were in. I don't think it's as big a leap as you think. And I don't think, more important, that these folks, as you describe them, are as big a barrier to getting consensus as you imagine. I say that as a registered Republican. Now, 
I'm done, but I, did you have? No, no, no. Why don't we give yep. people a chance? Great. Um, please raise your hand. We'll send a mic, uh, identify yourself, and we'll go from there. Gentlemen back there, Manny. Yeah, there you go. Uh, thanks very much. I'm uh, George Dragnich with uh, Northcourt, a new London-based nuclear insurance company whose business model is predicated on the rollout of uh, nuclear power globally. And so your initiative to reconcile nonproliferation with that rollout is a very welcome initiative, particularly for an insurance company. So thank you. The question I have is actually on global warming because you dismissed the capacity of nuclear energy to address that meaningfully. But just two weeks ago, Jeff Sachs, the director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, endorsed nuclear power as the only way to address irreversible climate change. And you know that Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the UN, has identified that as the greatest threat to mankind, not nuclear proliferation. Jeff Sachs was at the annual meeting of the Asia Development Bank in Manila. I didn't see it reported in the U.S. press, only picked it up in The Guardian, but it was quite significant because he's no friend of nuclear power. But what he argued was that the renewable technologies, biomass, solar, wind, uh, clean coal technology, CCS, are all at their infancy, and there's no way that they can develop and scale up in time to avert that climate change becoming irreversible. And so as difficult as the challenges that you correctly point out may be, there is no option, no option, but to press forward and to address nuclear as the only way to address climate change. So I, what I'm interested in, I don't know, everybody seems to be here. I've been on the opposite side of the table with Jeff Sachs. He and I have never agreed on anything before on global development issues, but I don't know that there are any climate change people here. How, what do you what What is your relationship to Jeff Sachs? Arguably, the the you know the, the most uh, advocate, uh, most well known advocate of the climate change initiatives. You know, and what he, do you say he, to him? He he and I know one another better than we know. I don't think we need to know one another, though. Let me suggest an alternative model to hypothesizing the end of the world and working backwards to your conclusion. There's a dollar value placed on carbon reduction. How many dollars does it take to reduce a ton of emissions? There's a timeline associated with how quickly you can do it, and there's a time value to money and investments. There is a model by the McKinsey Corporation. It is used by Exelon, the largest merchant utility in this world, not just in this country. Their conclusions are the same, I'm not making this up, as Greenpeace, which is you do not invest in nuclear now. Why? You are wasting time and money in carbon reductions if you do. There are quicker, cheaper ways to reduce carbon. Now, if, if it turns out that carbon reductions, first of all, are critical to saving the planet, by the way, I think the jury's still out a little. I'd like to think it may take a couple of weeks to be sure as to what the relationship is. But if it should turn out that that's the case, and if it should turn out that nuclear is the cheapest, quickest way to do it, I'll be the first to admit the game probably politically is over. But right now, you're not there. 
Can I add to that? Uh, my, my point wasn't that nuclear power is not effective in dealing with global warming. Uh, I didn't deal with that. But if that is your reason for getting nuclear power, you're going to have to get a lot of it. And therefore, when you're thinking about the side effects, you got to think about the side effects of a lot of it all over the world. I would just say Jeff Sachs has been wrong in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s on most of the things that he worked on beginning with shock therapy. Uh, to other kind of, he may be right about this, but I'm just saying, it, you know. Um, others? Yes? Uh, Jim Bailey, independent. Uh, hold on, sir. Sorry. There you go. There's there the microphone. Go. Uh, Jim Bailey, independent lawyer and consultant. The, uh, in the issues of enrichment, it, I've got it in my mind that the Nuclear Threat Initiative has proposed some sort of an enrichment bank in conjunction with the IAEA uh, from which Iran and other countries could pull necessary amounts of, of uranium, LEU, for their purposes for nuclear power production. Uh, have you considered that, and is that... You know, people always talk about these banks. The president just talked about a bank. It's kind of a solution looking for a problem. Uh, there is, you know, this is to make, uh, give people assurance they'll get fuel. There's not a problem in getting fuel. You get fuel from commercial suppliers. Um, I don't know. This has been one of these things people have talked about since uh, the IAA got started, since Adams for Peace, and it's never gone anywhere, and it doesn't really make any sense. For what it's worth, on this one, the World Nuclear Association and NPEC are in violent agreement. It's kind of interesting. But, you know, would that Iran did all that, fine. But I don't know that it, it's dispositive for dealing with the general question. If countries want to develop a weapons option and can justify legitimately that they can do this for civilian purposes, watch. They will. And the bank isn't going to turn them around. Uh, in the back, Fritz. Right to your right side. There you go. Uh, Fritz Ermart, I have no institutional affiliation worth mentioning <laughs> except uh, uh, a long history with both of our speakers. Uh, you shudder to think how long, actually. Anyway, um, your, your commentaries both presupposed an enforcement environment that uh, had to be... That, that, worth taking very seriously, uh, a powerful enforcement environment. We need to toughen up the rules if we're going to expand nuclear power. But, you know, I propose to you that the engine, the drivers of proliferation aren't the, uh, um, so much the uh, appetite for nuclear power to meet global warming uh, challenges as just strategic need. I mean, we're, look, we're, we're headed into an environment in which um, uh, disorder in the international scene will go up. Um, the, the challenges, threats indeed posed by uh, actors, um, well, aspirant powers like China, uh, revanchist powers like Russia uh, will go up. Uh, and, you know, the appetite for fo of folks that we, you know, looking out over the next 10, 20, 30 years might regard as bad guys for nuclear power for their strategic reasons will pro probably go up, that is, nuclear weapons, as well as friends who doubt the, the 
effectiveness of American assurances. Now, how, you know, uh, how likely is it that we're going to be able to, whether driven by expanding nuclear energy uh, demands uh, or otherwise, toughen up the rules and make that toughening effective in the strategic environment that we're facing, where you know the U.S. power as an enforcer is going to be going down relative to the environment, and the international community, quote unquote, uh, probably isn't going to have the cohesion, solidarity, uh, unanimity to make up for that decline. Well, I'm kind of reminded of a comment that was once made uh, by a famous black boxer during the Second World War. Uh, he was asked when he enlisted, given all the racial discrimination, why he was joining the army to fight Hitler. And he said, well, you're right about that uh, racist stuff, but it ain't anything I figure Mr. Hitler going to solve. I think... <laughs> You start with where you have more control and you work as hard as you can with what you have control over. It's fair enough to point out that folks might try to get these things with or without a nuclear power program. But I can tell you one thing. You used to work in the intelligence field, is my memory. Signal-to-noise signal ratio. Very, very important. If you've got lots of legitimate versions of things that can be used illicitly. Operating, trading, moving, your ability to smell one out from the other goes down, not up. And I know this from my own work in the Pentagon and in advising the intelligence community. It is a non, non-trivial point. Surely, what you're saying, though, has to be attended to as well. If large powers, as, as well as small, don't see the downside of these things spreading, you've got a problem. Best to make them see. But that doesn't get any better by subsidizing the movement of this technology faster, quicker than you've explained what the downsides are. Well, you know, all the countries you're worrying about are now members of the NPT and have signed on that they're not going to make weapons. So, but we're talking about spreading nuclear power technology. And, and uh, in those circumstances, that is most likely, following the present course, the most accessible route to getting nuclear explosives. And you'd like to create as much, make that as, as difficult as possible, create as as long a time from a decision to getting the stuff so someone can react. Now, uh, you know, there's no absolute bar ultimately. Yeah, in the back, and then we'll come up to this gentleman here. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Gilbert Brown. I'm a professor in nuclear engineering <clears throat> at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. I'm on sabbatical now at, uh, in Washington. The, the idea of nuclear power plants without having enrichment or reprocessing, is that an issue? It seems that 
in my opinion, the issue is transparency. And the issue is, if you have these other facilities, can the world be assured through, I guess the mechanism is the IAEA and inspectors, that things are okay because there are enrichment facilities and as long as we have almost 500 reactors in the world, we'll need to have enrichment facilities. It's just a question of where they are and, and how they're being used. So for me, the issue is one of assuring transparency. And even in Iran, if they were transparent, would we be having this meeting? Well, you know, if you've got material that is usable for weapons, I mean, directly, then transparency doesn't really do anything for you. There has to be some interval, I mean, some safety margin. Uh, in other words, if you've got HEU around, transparency isn't going to do anything for you because, or if you've got plutonium around, same thing, people can whip it into a bomb. No, separated plutonium, not spent fuel. Uh, so what we're talking about is keeping some margin and then having transparency. Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a study that uh, spent two years working with people under the table at the IAEA and other places, French government even helped out, called Falling Behind. And it spells out why when you start making powdered liquid and gas versions of enriched product and plutonium, your ability to keep track of it, even when you're looking at it, isn't that great. And your ability to see illicit activity that's meant to be hidden falls off the table pretty dramatically. And then there's this question of timely detection, much less timely warning. So I think what you're saying corresponds with what's in this report, which is keep the numbers and locations down if they're in weapon states better than in non-weapon states. If you don't need to reprocess, and you don't, don't. And, 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 and you know, the beauty of some of what's propounded here is that, at least in the case of the United States now, we are following these points we don't enrich to high levels. We don't recycle. And it's not like we have to tell people, at least on the recycling point, you know, do as we say, not as we do. With the enrichment, it's a, it's, it's a serious point, but it does suggest less and fewer places is better. separates the decision for a country to have power plants. Sure. From having this, absolutely. By the way, you know, Bush, at least in the first term, well, maybe I think from talking to you, maybe in the second term too, it was quite clear. He said, you don't need to make the fuel to have the power. He was right. Yes, this gentleman. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jeremy Cohn. I'm from Mitsubishi Nuclear Energy Systems. Um, just quickly to address your comment about Exelon, 
I think they have a slightly different motivation than Greenpeace. I think it has something to do with the $2 per million BTU that natural gas costs and less so about climate change and proliferation issues. Um, but my major question By the is, way, I'll sorry, take it. Go ahead. I'll take it. Okay. I don't care what his motive is. It's interesting that different motives get you the same spot. Well, well, the consideration there is that that's not a stable situation. Natural gas prices are eventually going to go up. Eventually, so. eventually, all things are possible. But for the moment, that's not the case. Okay. okay. Well, so my major question has to do with the fact that the United States no longer has a monopoly on nuclear components, nuclear materials, and nuclear technology. Um, since the 1970s, we now have Russia, we have Japan, we have Korea, we have France, who are all providing technologies to various countries around the world. And the reality is, is that countries are coming out because they, they need these technologies and they want them. The reason, I know there are other ways to produce electricity, but the reality is, is that natural gas in Europe costs six times what it costs here. Countries around the world don't have access to the vast coal reserves that the United States has. And solar power in many parts of the world has a capacity factor of between 10 and 20 percent. Wind has between 20 and 40 percent, which means you need backup get coal and natural gas, which leads to the same issues. If you don't have access to those natural resources, how do you generate reliable electricity and how do you have any sort of energy security? Well, again, uh, markets tend to work. You may very well be right in the end in certain locations or not, but that is not an argument for having our government go out of its way to promote this, number one. And number two, in many cases, it's just not right at all. The Middle East is a good example. But this is where we're focusing our promotion the most. I think you need to be careful as well. The, the countries. I think one, one person in the industry told me, we need to, f to follow the Russian example and model. I said, well, it's, it's a communist model. Uh, much of the industry you're talking about is super highly capital intensive in the construction phase and requires immense government support. It's for that reason that we may have more say and control over these things. So unless the market can dictate that this particular way to boil water in this spot really is good enough to raise private funds to finance it. Or in the case of insurance, you get someone to assume some of the risk associated with accidents. There are a lot of reasons not to be leaning forward or pushing the government to pick up the tab or back the bill or guarantee the loan. That's all. May I yeah, please. Quickly. Um, I, so currently, Congress, I mean, they have the ability to vote down any trade agreement with regards to nuclear. They have the ability to vote down any 1-2-23 agreement that they disagree with. Um, Do you believe that? Do you understand how it works? I understand it, that they, there's a period during which that they can vote it down. Here's how it works normally with a trade agreement. They have to vote. In the case of nuclear agreements, it's very different. It's on an expedited track of 90 legislative days, where if they don't pass a law with a supermajority, it goes into force. And the suggestion is, as was the case before 1954, when Congress delegated the power to the executive to make these nuclear agreements, Congress should take it back and treat it like a trade agreement. 
So it's it, it's sort of like what you say, but it's sort of not. There's a little a little more caveat it. And the, the argument that uh, Ross Leighton and, and Mr. Berman and Mr. Sherman and Mr. Royce have made publicly is surely if we need to have a forced oversight of trade agreements and we think we should vote and hold hearings, maybe we should do the same with nuclear cooperative agreements now. And that's the sentiment that may propel that effort. Maybe the executive will co-opt it. Maybe nothing will be passed. I don't know. But that's what the controversy is about. Anybody else? Yes, Milt. Uh, Milton Honig. Uh, what do you think Angela Merkel might have in mind when she talks about power, expanding power without nuclear, perhaps with just renewables? Well, I, I recommend the Bull Foundation for their attempts to answer that. It, it is a brave experiment. It may not work. <laughs> but I think the one thing advanced economies focus on the most is that portion of the electric bill that's the biggest, which has to do with the handling distribution, the grid, rather than the boiling of the water. Efficiency. And efficiency. Now, in the case of Japan, uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece that said that they use one-tenth the amount of uh, in money with regard to electricity to produce GDP, a unit of GDP, than China does. And they use less than we do, I think, by a third. And they're investing to bring that down yet another order of magnitude. I don't know how. But it has to do with that hope that you can reduce um, the costs of moving the, the, the electricity around, and you can uh, use the power that you have in a much more efficient fashion. Uh, you know, my, my wife is Australian. If, you, if you've been to Australia, you have these enormous coal plants. I mean, they're just unbelievably large. She doesn't turn off the lights. So I remember not turning off the lights. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that may be a, a glib and trivial way to look at it, but... It has something to do with that. There was somebody in the... Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm Carl Lundgren from Jonas Speaks. I'm an economist, so I tend to agree with your point about not subsidizing things that are not in the public interest or, or that may be against the public interest. But this uh, global warming versus nuclear power issue, uh, I'd make a comment on... One is the reason we're concerned about nuclear is because of nuclear weapons and the potential for nuclear war, which is a very uh, bad externality, as, as economists like to call it. And externalities are usually taxed or priced in some way to try to deal with the problem. And similarly with global warming, there's an externality if there's too many greenhouse gases, carbon being one of these gases, you know, put up there, then the earth is going to overheat, so to speak, and we're going to be miserable at least a few generations from now, and I'm not sure how far from now that is. It might be 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is. Uh, you, you try to price that out. And similarly, for nuclear power, we have at least two issues. One is what do we do with the waste? Do we bury it or recycle it somehow, which is very apparently not cost-effective? 
and the other is uh, the nuclear weapons or the, the diversion of material to nuclear weapons. And both of these are prices that should be added on to the cost of nuclear power in addition to trying to regulate it so that it's not diverted. So maybe, I don't know if you have any further comments on that. <laughs> well, actually in the paper we, we talk about at least having fees associated with meeting even what we think are probably very generous or loose timeliness detection goals that the IA has for inspections. They currently don't meet those goals. And certain facilities tax the IEA much more to meet those goals than others. Heavy water reactors, fuel making plants in particular are really inspection intensive if you want to meet those goals. Now you could make the user pay more for those kinds of nuclear facilities. And we suggest that maybe something like that would be useful. With regard to uh, taxing for uh, a nuclear war, uh, that one might be an actuary problem. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wouldn't bite that one off. But I do think we have some data now with regard to nuclear accidents because of Fukushima that suggests that we're off perhaps as much as an order of magnitude with regard to insurance. And I think insurance can play a role, at least on the safety side, uh, that externality. Um, right now, I believe the Japanese government, and I, I believe there's some representatives from Japanese government here, so correct me if I'm not right, have estimated that the uh, damage claims associated with the nuclear portion of their disaster are somewhere around $67 billion. Now, is, how am I doing? Are you nodding? Okay. My memory is still with me. So we have an insurance system that roughly says, and ours is the best, I'm told, uh, $300 million roughly is set aside with a requirement to go up to maybe around 12 or so billion dollars in the case of an accident that will be paid out over seven years, but only if the Department of Energy Secretary determines that the industry won't be damaged by having to pay this. So it might not even happen. That strikes me, you know, one remedy you could do is uh, pass a law saying that at the end of Price Anderson's current authority, uh, which I guess is 2025, uh, that's it. So start self-insuring now in anticipation. And here's some guidance figures to take all the numbers we have in the law, just add a zero everywhere and move it one order of magnitude over and you might, you might get somewhere where you need to be. That might be helpful in sort of pricing that. Finally, a price on carbon is a great idea, uh, but like all the ideas I just came up with, you have to sell it. And so I'm not against a carbon price, but speaking as a as somewhat of a fiscal conservative, please put a price on the carbon content of the fuel and make it revenue neutral. Don't give it to the, any department of the government. Don't do that. But the taxing is a reasonable point. With regard to war, good luck. That, that one's too hard, for me at least. Um, I'm sorry, we, we I want to, because it's a beautiful day and it's a Friday and you were also <laughs> kind to come, I want to make sure that we end uh, at the time that we said we would, which is now. Uh, so I want to ask you to thank Victor and Henry, and then we will thank you.